let me just uh, let me just introduce this idea of hermetic philosophy, um, and particularly this book, the Kabbalion, that was uh, written around about nineteen oh eight, I believe. Um, so the full the full title of the book is the Kabbalion: A Study of Hermetic Philosophy of Ancient Egypt and Greece. Bit of a mouthful. Published in nineteen oh eight by uh, anonymously, actually, by the three initiates, mm. um, which has often been identified as uh, a guy called William Walker Atkinson, who may or may not have been a Freemason. Uh, somebody the other day said, well, you don't want to read the Cabellion. A Freemason wrote that. And I said, um, why, why should that be a reason to disregard it? Good question. What did they say? Well, they said that the Freemasons sort of do a load of sort of wacky shit and uh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of weird stuff going on um, and some of it may not be true and I said, well, that may be, tri- that may be the case. But that, that doesn't mean that just because a Freemason wrote a book, if indeed it was a Freemason, that there isn't some truth in it. Um, I, tend, I tend to base whether it's truth these days on when I read something, is it, does it instinctively speak to me? Yeah. I'm, and I really, don't, I really don't care who's written it. You know, it, I really, don't, I really don't care that at all. And that even, that even goes, even though I'm no longer an, uh, a Jehovah's Witness and I'm no longer in what I consider to be a cult, there are still things that I learned as a Jehovah's Witness, things that were written in Jehovah's Witness publications that I've learned from. Sure. And I look at it and I say, well, I think that's true. Mm. You know, same with the Bible as a whole. There's certain things I look at and I think, no, that's nonsense. But other things, that's there's truth there. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, published by uh, this guy. It may or may not have been a Freemason. may not have even been him. It was published anonymously. Um, William Walker Atkinson was an occultist which as a Jehovah's Witness, we used to shy away from occultism because it was thought of as uh, demonism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but this week I just realised that I'm an occultist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess you and me both. Yeah, so uh, that's good. Um, basically, he was a lawyer. Um, he got interested in Hinduism, which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started introducing a lot of the Oriental occultism to the West. Um, and there was a movement that he was involved in at the time known as the New Thought Movement, which was a spiritual movement that coalesced in uh, America in the early 19th century. And it basically combined um, ancient Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Chinese, Taoist, Vedic, uh, Vedic, uh, Hindu, and Buddhist cultures, and trying to basically find the the beliefs that sort of overlapped in those different. Uh, do, do, you find, do you find it interesting that that happened in a? What you say? You say in America that New Thought movement was big here in the U.S. Do you, yeah. Do you, do you find that to be coincidental? Like this this melting pot place where we live? No. Uh, is the no. I don't. The, um, it's interesting that the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they weren't known as that at the time. They were called the Bible students. Mm. Charles Taze Russell was around about that period as well, 1870 through to he died 1916, I think. You've got Ellen White of yep. the uh, Adventists. 
Mm. Um, Mormonism? Joseph Smith, yeah, I think that was early 1800s, yeah. Mm. Yeah, there was quite a big revival into sort of weird spiritualism, mm. wasn't there, at the time? I know there was a lot of, um, certainly Charles Taze Russell was big on pyramidolo- pyramidology and... Um, yeah, and the Millerites are the other the other ones that the Adventists kind of grew out of the Millerites. They were very big on numerology, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, they kept setting dates for the end of the world and then being right. yeah, yeah, yeah. greatly disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think there was something there insofar as people were searching. They were searching. You know, I mean, even Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Bible Students, for a period went off looking at Buddhism and Hinduism. Mm-hmm. At the end, he came back to Christianity, but he kind of formed his own sort of version of it, which had a lot of numerology and pyramidology in it. So I, I don't want to go too far off the topic, but I want to bring something up that I brought up to you before. And you tell me if you see the link here. Um, if somebody studies world religions and picks and chooses the things that um, speak to them, like they're, like you said, if you intuitively agree with something or it yes. speaks to you, it calls out to you, then you want to adopt that. Um there's like a discernment that happens where you as a individual only on that level get to decide if it's compelling to you, if it, if it, you know, if it's, if it speaks to you and it's connected to something I brought up to you before when I was talking about morality and Jordan Peterson's take on morality, where he says, every decision you make is one choice against an infinite number of alternatives. And so you, there's discernment involved where as an individual, you're saying, I believe this decision is the best of all possible decisions. So it's actually every choice you make is a moral act. Yep. And I, th- I think there's a connection between the type of discernment you're making when you make any decision and the yep. kind that you, that you described when you're, when you're cherry picking those little nuggets of wisdom from all the different traditions. Yeah. And I think, uh, well, I, I know for a fact that um, when I was in a cult, because we were taught that, only we had the truth it was highly discouraged to pick the mix yeah um you you could not go outside the bubble that was jehovah's witnesses um if you started reading even reading about hinduism or buddhism or something like that people would give you a sideways look why would you do that because we've got the truth right, why would right. you look at you know um it always used to get me a bit because uh, I used to do uh, door-to-door preaching. You know, I'd go to the door and say, good morning, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and I'd encourage people to read our literature. And quite often people would would say, oh, okay, and they'd take the literature. And then they'd say, just wait there for a moment. And they'd nip indoors and they'd come back with a little pamphlet from their Buddhist temple or <laughs> Hindu temple or their 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 pentecostal church or whatever and they'd want me to read their information yes what and i always used to feel bad because we were told as jehovah's witnesses no why would you want their apostate lies we've got the truth (laughs) and it's a very narrow view it's a very very narrow view i believe absolutely Um, and i think since i've left um I've learned a lot from Hinduism. I've learned a lot from Buddhism. That's right. not to say that I'm a Hindu and that I accept the whole thing. I don't. Um, but there's certain elements of Hinduism that really resonate with me, and I think, yeah, I believe that. If you had to pick an existing religion, 
Mm-hmm. You pick one that most closely aligns to your beliefs. Would it be Vedanta Hinduism? Yes, I think it would. Um, it would. And particularly the Advaita um, philosophy. The um, not sure if I've written anything down on that or not. Oh, that's the, right. Let me just have a quick look. Uh, the kind of stuff that you read in the Upanishads, you know? Yeah, the Advaita. Uh, here we go. Uh, the Advaita. Um, the Advaita uh, philosophy is basically it's a non-dual form of Hinduism. Mm. So it doesn't attempt to say that there are many and we are all one. It's actually the opposite of that. There is only one. And the many that comes from the one is just an illusion. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. Um, and I, I buy into that, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. So um, the uh, the new thought movement that Atkinson was a, uh, a proponent of at the time, it had four main Main beliefs. Uh, number one was that God or infinite intelligence is supreme, universal, and everlasting. I, I can buy into that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, number two, divinity dwells within each person. All people are spiritual beings. Yeah. Yep, good with that. Yep. <laughs> number three, the highest spiritual principle is loving one another unconditionally and teaching and healing one another. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Golden rule. Yeah, that's like right. That. And then uh, number four, our mental states are carried forward into manifestation and become our experience in daily living. Say that again. Our mental states are carried forward into manifestation and become our experience in daily living. Love it. Love it. That's panpsychism, man. <laughs> panpsychism, law of attraction, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um. The Kybalion, the actual book that Atkins or whoever it was wrote, he actually said, uh, according to the teachings, the passage of this book is for those ready for the instruction. It will attract the attention of such as and when they are prepared to receive the teaching. And likewise, when the pupil is ready to receive the truth, then this little book will come to him or her. Such is the law. That's good, isn't it? Do you, do you feel like that's the case for you, Daniel? That uh, that you were you were introduced to the, those ideas that got you further along your spiritual path, right Absolutely. when you right when you could digest them. Yeah, I've uh, I've got a, a good friend on Twitter called Peter uh, from Australia, and uh, hello, Peter. Um, he's been banging on at me for months and months about the Kybalion and the Emerald Tablets of off or something oh yeah and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's kind of been whoosh, over my head mm. um but i've been kind of piecing together these these different sort of principles mentalism and correspondence and vibration and polarity and rhythm and cause and effect um and gender mm. and unbeknownst to me that actually is the basis of hermeticism and mm. uh, the basis of this book the Kybalion. And just the other day, he sent me a link to the Kybalion, and I started reading it, thinking, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> did I write this?" <laughs> it's like it literally is when you're reading it. It's like it's it's almost like something you've written yourself. It's that 
it, it, it speaks to you that closely. And I think when that occurs to you with a book, that is life-changing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it happened to me, happened to me with Maps of Meaning, uh, Jordan Peterson's book, and also okay. that Neumann book. Yeah. <laughs> Maps of meaning. That's one for my uh, one for my list. Yes. So shall we um, shall we work through the Kabbalion, just the seven principles? Um, I think so. Yeah, because I want to I want to actually talk about the Emerald Tablet of Hermes at the end if we can. So uh, as oh, long as we're very good. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we'll come back to Hermes and the Emerald Tablet at the end. Yes. So uh, the Hermetic wisdom that we're going to be speaking about basically comes from this guy called. Hermes, and uh, we'll come back to who he was a bit later. But just sticking with the book for now, the seven principles are mentalism, correspondence, vibration, polarity, rhythm, cause and effect, and gender. Okay. So the first one, the principle of mentalism, embodies the truth that all is mind that the all is the substantial reality underlying all outward manifestations. And this principle explains the true nature of energy, power, and matter. And I think this, I've heard you say a lot of times, all is mind. And yes, I've made a connection between mind and energy frequencies, if you will, and matter. And I often talk about it as the divine matrix Yes. Yeah, I, be, I use that phrase too. Um, the the matrix of being. Sometimes that's mm-hmm. what I'll. Say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like um, it. It sort of pictures in, in in my mind. I get this picture of a kind of grid, or a web, or a mesh, which represents, I suppose, uh, consciousness, if you will, or mind. And then somehow it's kind of the the actual thoughts that arise is like the the matrix actually being agitated mm. um, or aggravated. Yes. And, you know, so, something comes to my mind when I'm picturing the wave. Um, mm. You know, you talked about that already many times, but the uh, up and down, up and down, you got peaks and yeah. troughs. And, uh, you know, it occurs to me that a peak and a trough are, are opposites. And the separation of opposites is something that we continue to come back to when we're talking about God and creation, not only the creation of the cosmos, but the creation of consciousness. Um, That the symbol there is the Ouroboros, the uh, union of opposites, and that you can see it in the wave pattern. And if you plug me up to a brain scan, the name of which I can't can't come up with off the top of my head, that's what you would see, right? That's what you would see. It's, It's amazing. That's it, effectively. Um, I mean, it ties in, ties in with uh, vibration that we'll have a look at in a little bit as well. But, you know, this, this sort of basic idea that underneath everything there is uh, what the Kabbalion refers to as the all. Uh, I refer to it as source mm-hmm. or the whole. Um, and that is all there is in reality. There's basically two perspectives of looking at this there's the absolute perspective and then there's which is that there is only one all and then there's the relative perspective which is what we're more familiar with which is when we look at the all from different perspectives and we come up with a million different truths yes and it just depends on what perspective you're looking at the thing 
you know, but you are only looking at the same thing. So basically energy is the same as matter, is the same as time, is the same as vibration, is the same as the laws of forces. Mm. It's one thing. Do do you remember when I brought up the analogy of the instrument playing itself? Yes. So I imagine that that matrix of being, um, call that space time, call that God, call that whatever you want. It's, it's the thing that makes experience possible. It's potential, whatever that means. Yes. Um, that, that plane, that infinite plane, um, gets like you, you say agitated, right? It gets, uh, uh, energy moving through it and the waves moving. And what I picture is the instrument playing itself, right? It's, it's, it's God in yep. the most abstract sense and the excitements of that, of that, um, fabric, whatever, I don't know what word you want to use. Fabric but the, is a good word, yeah. the excitements of that fabric are caused by the fabric, right? It's like, it's yep. the instrument playing itself, and, and this is interesting because it has to be internal. There cannot be an external player because if there was, that would be the uh, the absolute. Right. And then, then you'd be saying, has this got a player? Exactly. Then that would be the absolute. So mm. basically when, when God, for want of a better word, or source creates, it's, it's a mental creation it's it's not using anything that already exists. It's not taking physical matter and forming it into something or taking a bit of itself and forming it into something. If it was to do that, it would diminish itself. Right. Um, that's not how creation occurs. Creation is a mental aspect. That's effectively what hermeticism is saying. It's Could God's thought. More. God's thought. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Love that one. Um, number two is the principle of correspondence. Um, I think you've mentioned this one before, actually. As above, so below. As yes. below, so above. Um, there are planes beyond our knowing, but when we apply the principle of correspondence to them, we are able to understand much that would otherwise be unknowable to us. Uh, this principle is of universal application and manifestation on the various planes of the material, mental, and spiritual universe. Um, the, uh, the ancient Hermetics considered this principle one of the most important mental instruments by which man was able to pry aside the obstacles which hid from view the unknown. Its use even tore aside the veil of Isis to the extent that a glimpse of the face of the goddess might be caught. Just as a knowledge of the principles of geometry enables man to measure distant suns and their movements while seated in his observatory, so a knowledge of the principle of correspondence enables man to reason intelligently from the known to the unknown. Studying the monad, he understands the archangel. This is effectively saying that if you want to understand a plane or a dimension or a level of existence, you effectively have to be at least one level above it. Mm. That's effectively what it's saying. You have to be on the outside looking in. Mm. So if we are indeed experiencing a having a four-dimensional what we would call a human experience at the very least we must be five-dimensional extra human in order to be able to experience that and we, we can't we can't actually experience our fifth dimension our spirit dimension at this moment in time because we're having a human experience mm. 
But whoever is further up the chain, so a sixth dimensional being, would be able to observe us. Mm, right. A seventh would be able to observe the sixth and the fifth and the fourth. Yeah. You, um, can, you, can you actually mentioned to me the other day that there could actually be dimensional beings going infinite. Well, there's a um, there's a Native American phrase, and I think we've said it before. I think maybe you've said it as well um, that it's turtles all the way down, right? Because of the, the, the I think the Iroquois or whatever, whoever it was, the Native American tribe had a had a, a myth about the creation of the world, and they, the question was, where did the earth come from? And they said, well, in the beginning there was just there was just water, and the duck and all the animals took turns diving down to see if they could find land and bring it up. And each animal goes one by one, and nobody can nobody can go low enough to get the, the earth. Finally, one of the animals manages to do it. He's the culture hero. He's the Jesus Christ character of the myth. And he brings up the earth. And in, in order to make it the earth, he puts it on the back of the turtle. Yep. So the turtle's floating there on the water, and the whole rest of the universe is built up on top. And you get this fractal picture. Okay, well, what's the turtle standing on? Yeah. Well, he's standing on another turtle. What's yep. he standing on? Another turtle. And it's turtles all the way down. So I see this as um, as above, so below, as a fra- an understanding of the fractal nature. Fractalism, I do as well. Absolutely. And if, and if, if, yeah. if, we, if we say that God is unknowable or that the unconscious is unknowable and there's parts of our experience that we don't have access to, what what the hermetic tradition says is you don't need to observe the unobservable. Just observe yourself and yes. everything you need to know about everything else. Because remember, you are a fractal, um, a fractal representation of the thing higher than you. Maybe that's the higher dimensional you and so on and so on and so on. So all you have to know is yourself. And that's just what the ancient know, Just know your higher self. Know thyself. That's mm-hmm. what the great <laughs> And if you know that, then you know everything. Isn't that amazing? And the way the way to understand this, the way to understand this in in, in simple forms, we were talking about a dot on a piece of paper earlier. Mm-hmm. That dot, which we'll say represents a one dimensional being, has to exist in something. In this case, it's existing in a piece of paper. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and then within that thing, it can then it can move and exist within that thing and become a two dimensional dot, for example. Um, we can do that. We can do that. We can draw dots on pages and move dots around pages because we're operating from a higher level. Right. Yeah. From a plane that has at least that we know of four dimensions, either three of space and one of time, or as I've postulated earlier, two of space and two of time, but we're in a, we're, we're operating from a fourth dimension, but for us to exist, we have to exist in a, for want of a better word, a container dimension. Yeah. Um, let's call it the fifth dimension. Now, we might call that um, we might call that uh, our higher self, but then that higher self has got to exist in something. Now, we could jump directly to the sixth dimension and say that's the absolute. That's that's God. Right. But what if it isn't God? What if it is merely gods that? caused our being and then they are themselves within a seventh dimension which is the ultimate being or as you say within another and another and another it's um you don't need to know all the way up all you need to know is the level above you 
Yeah, you know, you know what's funny about this to me? I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but when people say God is infinite, I agree with them. Mm-hmm. But when you ask somebody what infinity is, we don't usually see eye to eye. I think infinity is a verb. I think I think it's an action word that to, that to be infinite is an action. It requires something. It's not it, it's not a given. Infinity doesn't exist. It has to be created. It has to be constantly created. So so God is infinite. Yes. In the sense that it's always transforming. It's always become becoming more and becoming different. Uh, does that make any sense to you? It does. It, it, that might actually explain why. Um, so sometimes when we think of infinite, we think that infinite already exists. But it might be a case that infinite only exists when it needs to exist. See, there's, there's a so paradox. If you, reach, if you reach a point where you say, ah, oh, I've found God, then there's another layer. Mm. And then you find that and you go, ah, oh, there's God. And then there's yeah. another layer. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a paradox here. And every time I bump into these, I think there's something to it. That to, if I said God is infinite and that that's an action word, meaning that it's something that's continually um, being added to, let's say, that there that God is at once in this moment finite and infinite, right? Because yes. right, there's only so much, even though it's continuing to grow at any moment, it's finite, you know. And people ask if God is infinite, then why is the creation, why is the cosmos and our experience and everything that's ever existed finite? How is that possible? And the truth seems to be that it's both at once, you know. And it he, could it could very likely be uh, like the Hindu philosophy of the serpent eating its own tail. Once you introduce a circle into the equation, it's it's it, it it's both finite and infinite. Um, it has it the, has a beginning, but once yeah. it once it exists, it doesn't have a beginning. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> that may be that may be how it goes on. Maybe all those layers, all those uh, dimensions that we're speaking about, maybe they back in on themselves and. Maybe there is a, a case, uh, in fact, we come to it a little bit later, maybe there is a case to be said that um, God is breathing out and breathing in and there's a constant destruction and creation and destruction and creation, and that is what the infinity is. I'm okay with that. I like that. Okay, right, we'll get on to that in a bit. Uh, number three is uh, the principle of vibration. Um, nothing rests, everything moves, everything vibrates. Um this principle explains that the differences between uh, manifestations of matter, energy, mind, and even spirit result largely from varying rates of vibration, from the all, which is pure spirit, down to the grossest form of matter, all is in vibration. The higher the vibration, the higher the position in the scale. The vibration of spirit is at such an infinite uh, rate of intensity and rapidity that it is practically at rest just as a rapidly moving wheel seems to be motionless. And when I read that, I thought, hang on a minute. I said that a few weeks back. I said about a bicycle wheel. If you're spinning a bicycle wheel and you stick your hand in it, it appears very solid. Yes. Yeah, we did talk about that. We did, didn't we? Even though it's like only like 90% of a bicycle wheel doesn't exist. So the principle of vibration is that once you introduce movement into something, then you then you can start thinking about atoms and molecules, and matter in general. Right. So, so with a 
with a wavelength, you know, I th- I'm almost certain that the, that this, like the more tightly packed the wavelength is, the more energy it has. Right. So it's yeah. a lot more, a lot more ups and downs when, when, you know, there's more energy in it. And I wonder, I wonder if this principle of vibration is like, we differentiate the world based upon how much energy um, is in that wave. Um, you know, a wavelength that's, let's say the, uh, the color red is a, um, a, a more densely packed wavelength than blue. So that's how you get, that's how you get diversity out of, out of oneness, let's say, but because we know energy and matter are the same thing and that we exist in a closed system, right? Energy can't be created or destroyed. What directs the energy? You know, it's like, what is causing more energy to go in one direction to become something and less energy to become something else? Is, is that random? Is it intelligent? Is it directed? Um, you know what I mean? There's, I have so many questions. It's um, to, to use an analogy, you were saying that the, uh, the creator is rather like a musician playing an instrument. Um, I play the guitar. And if you've got a guitar with six strings on it, each of those strings vibrates at a different, different frequency, doesn't it? Um, on the door behind me, you'll see, uh, my chakras. Yes. Seven chakras. Um, they represent the energy points within the human body, starting from the root chakra at the bottom all the way up to the um, the seventh oh. chakra, which is the crown chakra. And each one is actually a color. Mm. And red is the lowest frequency, working through to the highest frequ- frequency, which is purple at the top. Um, and it actually corresponds, uh, Mariella, my girlfriend, hello, Mariella, um, was mentioning to me this week that uh, crystals, she does a lot of, uh, she's into crystals and healing and that sort of thing. Uh, the crystals themselves, based on the color of the crystal, actually carries uh, different frequencies. That's very interesting. I've always been one to write off that sort of thing, but I'm not sure I, I can. Yeah. I'm not really sure I can write it off. I, you know, the, the atoms, the atoms in those crystals are vibrating. That's for sure. And yeah. what makes crystals unique is how evenly uh, formatted the atoms are. They're all stacked in very even r- rows. And it, so it gives them the structure that's special to a crystal. And they use crystals in all kinds of ways scientifically. So mm, absolutely. You know, well, I mean, I think, even a simple thing like a clock, you, you have a quartz clock, which is right. entirely on quartz frequencies. Right, uh, which got me thinking. I wonder. I wonder what would happen if you created a clock based on a different crystal. <laughs> I don't know. You'd probably end up with a a clock that runs fast. I don't. Yeah, know. yeah, fast or slow. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's. Um, I, I I was the same, Chris. I uh, I used to the idea of crystals. I thought, well, a load of rubbish. If I'm honest. Yep. Um, no, no offense, Mariella. I'm on your side now. <laughs> yeah, we're converts. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the more that she's spoken to me about this, um, she's very intuitive. You know, we we're talking about intuition earlier. Uh, she's an empath, and she picks she picks up on energies of people, um, all that kind of thing. And when she's in a crystal shop, it's like she can just feel all the vibrations. It's it's like the crystals are alive to her. Mm, that's um, interesting. There's, there's actually a bit in the uh, in the Kabbalion book that says that. Um, crystals actually can be thought of as a a form of life. 
due to the frequencies that, that is in it. Yeah, I mean, if you if you can zoom down to the level of the atoms, you would not you would not disagree that it's alive, right? Yeah. It's alive, it's moving around. Yeah, um, and that that could actually then extend out to other things like plants, definitely animals. Um, I'll tell you something on, I've, I've just started just a little bit of a tangent here. Uh, I used to be the kind of guy that if a little ant ran across my um, desk, I wouldn't think twice about giving it a squish. <laughs> it's just an ant. Yeah. Um, more recently I found myself um, letting the ants go to the point in my shower, I've now got um, so even some little daddy long legs that have taken up residence in the shower. And uh, I'm becoming a bit of a Buddhist. I'm sort of looking at all things that are alive and thinking, you know, they've got as much right as I have. <laughs> so it's funny you say that because I have had the same experience. Um, I yeah. am, So my, grandfa- my grandfather has a like a pet name for all the grandkids. And he calls me bugs because I'm not a fan of them. And uh, also when I went hunting with it, with my grandfather and my, my uncle and my dad growing up, I, uh, I got Lyme disease because I, I had so many tick bites. I was like, you know, I was like attracting them, you know? Um, so after in 2018, when I had my mystic experience, I started to see God in everything. And, yeah. and then if I would see a spider, generally I would just kill it right away. You know, it's an existential threat. It didn't ask permission to come in my house and it's an existential threat to my children. I'm going to smash that goddamn thing. And uh, now, now I, I can't. Now I think you're yeah. going to crush this little experience that's just like you. It's, it's God's eyes looking out and seeing itself and you're just going to end that. How dare you, you know? Yeah. And where, where this is leading and, uh, I, I mean, I, I am not vegetarian at all. Um, I like my meat, but I'm starting to feel bad about eating meat. I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of, I wish I didn't, you know, like to eat meat. Um, maybe that's something that I'll eventually kind of reach. You know, when I'm sort of eating a chicken, it, I'm looking at it thinking this thing was running around a few hours ago, you know. Yeah, you have you have fun with that. I uh, I'm not I'm not going there. I think that <laughs> you have to, you, something has to die for anything to live. Everything is recycled by nature, including life and uh, and soul. And so yeah. I'm perfectly happy to eat meat, and I'm not going to stop. Did you know? Did you know? There's some uh, I can't remember who they are, but there are some. Um, I'm not sure if they're Hindus or Buddhists, but they only eat. Um, plants that grow above ground they don't eat root plants because if oh, you really? eat a root plant it's like you're killing the plant off oh i see i see so they, yeah. they don't eat meat but they they also only they only eat plants that they can pick from hmm. yeah that's interesting i wonder if they would eat eggs and milk because that's a renewable resource you know hmm i don't know yeah maybe i'll uh, start living on eggs um this principle of vibration, um, this might be a discussion for another day. I don't know. Uh, but me and Mariella got talking about ley lines. I know a lot of people debunk ley lines. Um, but I read something that basically says that ley lines are like the chakras of the earth. That's interesting. Isn't it? I love so below, Daniel. There you go. Right. Uh, principle number four, uh, and I think you'll have something to say on this. Um, the principle of polarity. Now, it says in the Kabbalion that everything is dual, everything has poles, 
everything everything has a pair of opposites like and unlike are the same opposites are identical in nature but different in degree extremes meet all truths are but half truths all paradoxes may be reconciled um I'm actually a non-dualist. So when I read that, I thought, mm, no, I disagree with that. Everything is dual. But a bit later in the Kabbalion, it actually says that the duality in the principle of polarity is actually an illusion. It's not actually mm. duality. There is only one. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I would describe to. Yes. Yeah. Um, so non-duality, as per the Advaita Vedanta, is the idea of non-secondness, uh, the idea that Brahman alone is ultimately real, while the transient phenomenal world is an illusory appearance. The highest self and absolute reality is uh, non-different, and Advaita Vedanta adapted these philosophical concepts from Buddhism. Now, what I liked about this, that Advaita Vedanta uh, philosophy is from buddhism is buddhism doesn't entertain the idea of gods and that's the one thing about hinduism that i'm not really subscribed to the idea of some 33 million deities being manifestations of brahman mm-hmm. I, mean, I had enough i had enough on my hands worshiping one god as a jw you know the idea of worshiping 33 million of them so I, yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I, I may have told you the story before, but the story of the Buddha reaching enlightenment, uh, he was meditating under the Bodhi tree mm-hmm. and he's starting to get to the point where he's reaching Nirvana and the, he, well, Siddhartha was a Hindu. So it's important to realize that Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He was a Hindu, just like Jesus was a Jew, you know, right, yeah. and, uh, and the Hindu gods were attacking his spirit as it was ascending out of his body because they were trying to prevent him from becoming greater than that, than they are. Right. He was, he was ascending to something higher even than the gods. And what's so great about that story is that Buddhism teaches you that as a human being, you are greater, you have a potential greater than the gods. And so it requires an understanding of yourself as greater than, than the gods. I mean, um, I'm no stranger to, to talking that way. I think that I think that I am God. I think that that we are God um, yep. collectively, and um, uh, and it, it, it reminds me of the way Carl Jung talks about the classical gods. He he talks about classical gods as though they're psychological forces. They're things that are common to every human being, which is why we believe we where we used to believe that we inhabited a world full of these spirits because everybody had the same spirits within them, and it was almost like. This, th- that there were spirits outside of us that were I- influencing us similarly. But in truth, there, those spirits exist within us. And we are, we are millions of gods, you know, uh, existing within this unity. Um, I, I think there's a, some truth in that, you know. There's a, um, there's a bit uh, later, which I just want to uh, read to you that, talks about involution and evolution that touches on that um i have again same as you i have no no trouble thinking of god gods angels different levels of spirit beings uh, and so forth i think where i where i couldn't subscribe 100 percent with hinduism um is the idea of actually worshiping 
these gods. You know, I can't imagine myself having a little shrine bowing down to Shiva or whatever, um, because I don't think it's necessary. I think if if you understand that you are God, that you are Brahman, a manifestation of Brahman, um, these shrines where you're worshipping gods, it, it might sort of get you so far, it might keep you humble up to a point. Right. I think once you get that spiritual awakening and you realize that you are God, that you are Brahman, and that we're all one, why would you worship? Yeah, be, being humble doesn't work so well when you realize you're God, does it? No, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to worship myself. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't work. Um, and so you kind of you fall back into this rather. Um, it's almost. It, it's not like I'm God. Woohoo! Aren't I amazing? Right. It's actually the opposite, isn't it? It's like yes, I'm it God. It's no big deal. Yes, exactly. It's the most mundane. It's the most common thing imaginable. That's right. Yeah. So you don't need the gods anymore. We'll touch on that a bit later. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, this idea of uh, polarity, you're like this. It says uh, to illustrate heat and cold. Although opposites are really the same thing, the differences consist merely in degrees of the same thing. So cold is basically something that's not as hot. That's right. It's the same thing. And it even takes this as far as to say that good and evil are the same thing. Yes. It's just a degree of goodness, um, which made me think in Hebrew – You'll often read in Hebrew someone saying in the Bible that they hated someone. Um, I think it was, um, was it Isaac that married two girls, Rebecca and Rachel and Leah? Uh, that sounds right. Isaac, or was it Abraham, Isaac? Oh, yeah, I think it was. It was Abraham had Sarah and... Um, um, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that's right. One of, them, one of them married Rachel and Leah. Yes, that was... Ah, boy, Isaac or Jacob. But Abraham had two wives, too, because because one of his sons became the Jewish people and the other son became the Arab. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hagar, Hagar. That's it, there you Um, go. But in the Hebrew, it says that he loved his other wife. Uh, Well, it says he hated his other wife. And Mm. in the Hebrew, it literally means loved less. Mm. That's all it means. Interesting. Hating hating someone just means loving them less. Um. And I just thought that was good because it ties in with that idea of good and evil or uh, love and hate. You know, it's uh, it's all the same same thing, just different degrees. Right. Well, th- think about it. I mean, if you've ever had your heart broken, which um, um, both of us have, I'm sure, um, the people who you love the most, you know, those are the ones that hurt the most. There's there, there's yeah. There's this far of a separation between hate and love, just this much, you know? There is, yeah. And often relationships, like particularly really passionate ones like that, it's a job to tell when you actually hate or love them, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. is. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, very good. Uh, number five, the principle of rhythm. Now, I love this one because it says uh, everything flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. The pendulum swing manifests in everything. The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Rhythm com- compensates. So it's talking about this kind of um, ebbing and flowing. And I had this thought this week. I've experienced a lot of loss in my life. 
huge amount of loss. Um, but if you don't lose something, you're not really in a position to gain anything. Mm. And there's often this thought that if you've, you know, if you hold on to something too hard for too long, um, the universe will find a way to make you lose it mm. at some point. You know, it's um, because you can't, you can't receive anything new if you've got a clenched fist. Mm. Yeah. And by virtue of the fact that you open your, your hand allows certain things to, to go. Um, yeah. There is this constant ebbing and flowing. You know, it's uh, things coming into your life and things leaving your life, whether that's uh, relationships or possessions, money, friendships. It, you know, that makes me think of, Daniel, is the people that say um, to empty yourself. You know, like Buddhists will say that, em empty your mind or empty yourself. But why do you want to be an empty vessel in order to be filled up with something? In order you know? to be filled. Right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I kind of, in the past, I've looked at the loss that I experienced as a great tragedy. And it, and it was painful, very, very painful. Um, but I'm now kind of looking at, at it as an opportunity because there's a lot of people that go through their 70, 80, 90 year life and they don't, they don't lose anything, particularly they hold on to everything for their whole 70 or 80 years. And their life is very much the same. They have one life and they mm. reach the end of it and then that's it in this life. Whereas I actually feel a little bit like at 50 years old, I died and I lost everything, literally yes. everything. Yes. Um, and it's given me an opportunity to have a second life while still alive in this one. Yes. And that, I think, is, that is a privilege. It is the point of life, as far as I'm concerned, what you just described is the hero's story. It's yeah. just like Hercules and just like Jesus. You were born again. That's yeah. what we said. That's what happened to yeah. you. It was a transformation. And it's, it goes back to the as above, so below. God is transformation. And you, have, you are God. That means you have no choice. You must continue to transform. And when you fail to do that, yeah. you, yeah. you die. You're gone. You're done, man. So yeah. you did what you had to do, like a phoenix rising from its own ashes. It is. That's, that's, that's exactly what it is. And and the fact that I may, you know, hopefully have another 20, 30, maybe longer years in this life, um, it's quite something that. It's, it's like having a completely blank sheet, but having gained a huge amount of experience, mostly from knowing now what not to do. <laughs> you know that, those sort of things that i did before didn't kind of work out good that's right so i, I won't be repeating that i'll probably make more mistakes new mistakes but new um, mistakes. I, won't, I won't be repeating the same mistakes and that just makes me feel uh like it's an opportunity Absolutely. I, feel quite, I feel quite positive about that so <laughs> the principle of rhythm is that mm. one um <clears throat> on Twitter this week, I wrote a little tweet that said, life I have learned is about loss. We must lose to gain possessions, relationships, even beliefs. Allow them to come and go to ebb and flow. To do this gracefully is the lesson. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, – Good. Uh, number six, the principle of cause and effect. 
Um, I know you speak about cause and effect quite often. The hermetic teachings tell us that the higher planes dominate or have cause on the lower planes. Um, yeah. And that is often why the masses of people are carried along obedient to the wills and desires of others stronger than themselves. That's quite mm. interesting. It is interesting. It reminds me of this thing I've been toying with. There's a word that comes up in Spinoza's philosophy called the canatus, a Latin word. And it's like the collective will, you know, and this is something that I've um, it's like we're, we're moving as a culture. We're moving in a certain direction and we're all participating in it, but none of us are leading it. You know, none of us know where it's going or why. That's what it reminds me of. It's like we, yeah. we have, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's. Um... I mean, that can be a good good thing or a bad thing. I think sometimes what happens is you you end up with masses of people being moved along by some higher force um, that's above them in either some mental plane or spiritual plane that's higher than their kind of gross physical plane that they're working from. Um, and it becomes a matter of not thinking. Mm. They just get moved along. Um, the hermetic teaching says that there's basically the three basic planes. There's a physical plane, a mental plane, and a spiritual plane. And it just struck me this week that so many people today live purely from a physical plane. You look at their Instagram accounts and all they're interested in is going to the gym, you know, having a beautiful body, yep. big, big lips, whatever. Big lips, big butts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'm not decrying that. Great. No. But that is that is only one plane. You know, there's so few people today, I think, that think. They don't have a mental life. Hmm. And they don't even they certainly don't have a spiritual life. So hmm. many people eat and I'm even including in that the religious. Absolutely. They don't think and they don't they're not spiritual. Does it does it strike you as uh, coincidental that that's sort of a trinity? The physical, yep. the spiritual, the mental. <laughs> yeah. yeah it is. <laughs> Very good. And then we've got the uh, the final one, which is the principle of uh, gender, uh, which is what we were talking about at the beginning, that mm -hmm. uh, gender is in everything. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Um, you, anything to add on that one? Do you see? I see that as very much related to the polarity. In fact, I see it kind of like the same the same sort of thing. It's, yeah. With polarity, you have opposites in union, and that's what you see with um, the separation idea, the gender idea. Yep. I agree. I agree with that one. Um, it just made a nice little thought as well that um, because source or the all is both masculine and feminine, um, we are never without a father or a mother. I thought that mm. was a nice yeah. Um, if I can just, uh, if I can just make a few comments on uh, involution and evolution, Please, no. and then hand over to you uh, to talk about Hermes. Yes. Okay. All right. So um, I wrote a poem which I, I shared with you a while back called uh, "God's Breath." Mm -hmm. If you remember that one, and it was talking yeah. about how God creates by breathing out. And then breathing in and, and this kind of cyclic um, constant in and out in order to learn. And uh, the hermetic um, 
principles talk about a process of mental creation. And uh, it uses a couple of words. It uses involution, which I um, think of that as synonymous with God breathing out, and then evolution, which is God breathing in. Hmm. So it, it goes like this. It says the hermetic teachings concerning the process of mental creation are at the beginning of the creative cycle, the all in its aspect of beingness projects its will towards its aspect of becoming and the process of creation begins. Mm. It is taught that the process consists of the lowering of its vibration until a very low degree of vibratory energy is reached, at which point the grossest possible form of matter is manifested. This process is called the stage of involution, in which the all becomes involved or wrapped up in its creation. This process is believed by the hermeticists to have a correspondence to the mental process of an artist, a writer or an inventor, who becomes so wrapped up in his mental creation <coughs> excuse me, as to almost forget his own existence. Mm and who, for the time being, almost lives in his creation. If instead of wrapped, we use the word wrapped, R-A-P-T, perhaps we will get a better idea of what is meant here. This involutory stage of creation is sometimes called the outpouring of the divine energy, just as the evolutionary state is called the indrawing. The extreme pole of the creative process is considered to be the furthest removed from the all, while the beginning of the evolutionary stage is regarded as the beginning of the return swing of the pendulum of rhythm, a coming home idea mm. being held in all the hermetic teachings. The teachings are that during the outpouring, the vibrations become lower and lower until finally the urge ceases. And the return swing begins. But there is this difference that while, the, while in the outpouring, the creative forces manifest compactly and as a whole, yet from the beginning of the evolutionary or indrawing stage, there is manifested the law of individualization. That is the tendency to separate into units of force so that finally that which left the all as unindividualized energy returns to its source as countless highly developed units of life having risen higher and higher in the scale by means of physical, mental and spiritual evolution. The ancient hermeticists used the word meditation in describing this process of the mental creation of the universe. In the mind of the all, the word contemplation is also frequently employed. The idea intended seems to be that that of the employment of the divine attention. Attention is a word derived from the Latin root, meaning to reach out, to stretch out. And so the act of attention is really a mental reaching out, mm. extension of mental energy, so that the underlying idea is readily understood when we examine into the real meaning of attention. Um, nearly there. <clears throat> The process regarding evolution is that the all, having meditated upon the beginning of the creation, having thus established the material foundations of the universe, 
having thought it into existence, then gradually awakens or rouses from its meditation. And in so doing, starts into manifestation, the process of evolution on the material, mental and spiritual planes successively and in order. Thus, the upward movement begins and all begins to move spiritward. Mm. Matter becomes less gross. The units spring into being. The combinations begin to form. Life appears and manifests in higher and higher forms. And mind becomes more and more in evidence. The vibrations constantly becoming higher. In short, the entire process of evolution in all of its phases begins and proceeds according to the established laws of the indrawing process. All of this occupies aeons upon aeons of man's time, each aeon containing countless millions of years. But yet the illumined inform us that the entire creation, including involution and evolution of a universe, is but as the twinkle of an eye. So do not feel insecure or afraid. We are held firmly in the infinite mind of all, and there is nothing to hurt us or to fear. There is no power outside of the all to affect us, so we may rest calm and secure. There is a world of comfort and security in this realisation. Once attained, then calm and peaceful do we sleep, rocked in the cradle of the deep, resting safely on the bosom of the ocean of infinite mind, which is the all. In the all, indeed, do we live and move and have our being. That's it. Long-winded. Basically, what he's saying is that God comes up with an idea for a universe, breathes it out, and then he allows the whole thing to spring back through the process of evolution, development, and that we are basically making our way back home as spirits. Mm, That's effectively what he's saying, isn't it? Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I love that thought taken from Acts 17, um, that we actually move, live and move and have our being within, within that source, that divine matrix. Exactly. So, so I picked up on something in the beginning that you said, you said that um, something like being plus will equals becoming. And yeah. uh, becoming is what we experience. That's what our experience is. It's a transformation. Um, so I wonder if, you know, being like the matrix of being right, that the, the thing that um, makes experience possible, that's the thing that I would call potentiality or God. Yeah. And but but that require God requires a will, a desire, a something else in order to transform in order to become being. Yep. And so it occurs to me that that will idea is related to attention, which we brought up earlier, or you brought yep. up earlier, focused consciousness, and also energy and vibration. Yep. And so it may be that that's the mechanism yep. that, the, that the will of God, whatever that is, is what's moving that fabric. It's what's... Yes, and it's effectively bringing the whole of the seven principles together into this this. It is a creative process. And that will that you refer to, Chris, is not an external will that is willing God to act. Because if there was an external will, that would imply that the will was higher than the source. Yeah. So this is this is an an inner will, a being, just a 
basically God creates because he creates. Mm. That's it. There's no other reason. That's it. It's not because someone's telling him to create. It's not because he's lonely. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's yeah. not because he has to create. He creates because he creates. That's right. And I, th- I think that's, you know, that, that basically comes down to uh, when you write a piece of music or poetry, people say, why did you write that? I just think. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the seven principles. Now, you've got something to say on uh, Hermes himself, haven't you? Where, yeah. where does Hermes come into this and hermeticism? Come it's it's a great question. So it's a great question. So um, what you what you just what you and I just read, or what we were discussing with the Kabbalion, or whatever, however you pronounce that, that's a relatively recent work, but one that's based that has ancient roots, and it goes back to, um, I mean, Hermeticism goes back to the Greek god Hermes. That's where her, the word Hermeticism comes from, Hermes. And what people should remember about Hermes is that he's the messenger of the gods. He's he's the intermediary between man and the in the heavenly realm. He brings the messages. Well, that's what a prophet is, you know. So Hermes is a religious figure, and he's one that connects the divine to the to the material world, to you and I. And um, so he's connected to a wisdom tradition that that goes way way back. And the uh, and there's a connection between Hermes, the god. And Toth, the Egyptian god of wisdom. Oh, is it Toth? I keep calling him Thoth. I, I did too for a long time. Yeah, Thoth. Um, okay, we'll go with Thoth. Yeah. And if you look at an image of the Greek god Hermes and you look at an image of Toth, what you will see is that Hermes carries this very particular looking staff. And mm-hmm. so does so does Toth. Otherwise, they don't look anything alike. But the ancient Greeks and Egyptians, they connected those two gods and they did that with lots of gods. It was it, it, they recognized when they encountered each other. Oh, we're worshiping the same gods. We just call them different names. Names, and that, yeah. Fascinating, by the way. But um, so what? So what happens is in ancient uh, in ancient times there was these these wisdom traditions um, that the priests and the um, uh, shamans and stuff carried from a- ancient prehistory into the into the early days of civilization. And it was secret knowledge, you know, the type of stuff that we would see later on with the Gnostics and the mystery religion, including Christianity. And so um, there there are all kinds of writings that are occult type writings. They have to do with alchemy. They have to do with magic. They have to do with ritual. And it's these secret things that were passed along, um, you know, in the ancient world between the, the, um, the, the wisest people in those in those cultures. And one of the things that was written is called the Emerald Tablet of Hermes. Mm-hmm. And if you if you hear Hermes talked about in this context, he's called Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the Thrice Great. Some people say the Thrice Great part is a uh, is a reference to the Trinity. I don't know if that's the case. I just read read that somewhere. But the Emerald Tablet of Hermes is interesting, and it's not long. We uh, we can read it. Um, very quickly, and I want to. It's only twelve lines long. Please, yeah, um, yeah. There are, and this is. Trans- so, so let me just get this right a minute. Hermes Triste Trismegistus. Trismegistus mm-hmm. was saying is whether or not he was real or legendary. He was. He started out life as a a a Greek person in their mind, someone who had wisdom, and he was a prophet and so on. And then from that idea, we get the idea of Hermes the god. And Toth, the god? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. So I don't know I don't know the historical answer to that question. I don't think Hermes Trismegistus was thought of as a as a person, um, apart from the Greek god Hermes. I think that they're the same being. All um, right, okay. But Hermes Trismegistus is. Um, well, it's just like um, it's just like when we talk about the Bible and we say that God gave the the scripture to human beings, or that like the god Shamash from ancient Babylon gave the the code of Hammurabi to Hammurabi. It's like that. Hermes gave the Hermetic tradition, the wisdom secrets to people, and they kept these traditions going. And there's all kinds of translations, uh, all kinds of texts that go way back to like the third, fourth century BC. They go all the way through the Middle Ages. So this tradition is connected to med- medieval alchemy just as much as ancient philosophy. So he's is- like a uh, like kind of messenger or a word, if you will. Yes. Okay. And th- and it was interesting is this particular tablet. Um, it has. I- I'm looking right now on my other screen. There's translations from Arabic. There's translations from uh, Latin. There's translations from Isaac Newton, by the way, Um, Phoenician, uh, Chaldean. So there's all kinds of references to Emerald Tablet. And they go back. I tell you this because there's not it's not clear how old it is. It could this could be very, very ancient. And uh, Isaac Newton himself actually translated this. So I'm going to read for you. I'm going to read for you a hodgepodge um, because there's so many different translations. I sort of pick and choose the ones that I want to bring to you, but it goes like this. Um, Here is that which the priest has dictated concerning the entrance of Belinus into a hidden chamber. After my entrance into the chamber where the talisman was set up, I came up to an old man sitting on a golden throne who was holding an emerald tablet in one hand. And behold, the following was written thereon. So now, so this is the stage being painted. This person goes into this hidden crypt, this hidden chamber, and he sees this ancient statue and it's holding this emerald tablet. And here's what it says. Here is a true explanation concerning which there can be no doubt. What is above is like what is below. And what is below is like that which is above. Working the miracles of one. As all things were from one, and as all things were made from contemplation of one, so all things were born from one adaptation. Uh, And things have been from this primal substance through a single act. It is the main principle of the world and its maintainer. And as all things have been and arose from one, by ye meditation of one, and so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaptation. I actually read three different translations of the same line for you. That last one is Newton's translation. And it says, its father is the sun and its mother the moon. The wind has borne it in its body and the earth has nourished it. It is the father of all works of wonder in the world. Its power is complete. A fire that becomes the earth. Separate the earth from the fire so you will attain the subtle and more inherent than the gross with care and sagacity. Um, Hold on, I got to scroll. If cast to earth, it will separate earth from fire, the subtle from the gross. 
Its force or power is entire if it be converted into earth. With great capacity, it ascends from earth to heaven. Again, it descends to earth and takes back the power of the above and the below. Because the light of lights within it, thus does the darkness flee before it. This is the force of forces which overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates into everything gross. Thus the world was created. The structure of the microcosm is in accordance with the structure of the macrocosm. And accordingly proceed the knowledgeable. And because of this, they have called me Hermes Trismegistus, since I have three parts of the wisdom and philosophy of the whole universe. And this is the last book which he concealed in the chamber. That's it. That's the whole. That's the wow. 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 What, did you latch uh, on to anything particular? I, I did. Uh, so as you were reading that, I was relating each of the parts to the seven principles. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you've got very much that. I mean, it starts off with the idea as above, so below. Mm-hmm. You've got your different planes, your different dimensions. Um, you've got um, it talked there about everything coming from the one. Mm-hmm. There is only one. I thought right. that was good. Um, the father and the mother. Um, yes. And it, it likened that to the sun and the moon. That was interesting. Yes. So we've got the, the idea of uh, gender working mm-hmm. through everything. Yes. Creation and uh, being born. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I love that. Um, it, it also used the word manif- um, meditation there, didn't it? Yes, it used contemplation, meditation. Kabbalion book, it was talking about this meditation almost as if God going into a meditative state, mm. breathing out, taking a taking a moment, and then breathing in. And then it, it also, the Emerald Tablet there is uh, talking about everything evolving from the grossest point going back spiritward. Mm. That is, yes. That's just, I'll tell you what that reminds me of. That is basically like a Genesis 1 version, mm. but with more detail. The Genesis yes. 1, it's also in the beginning, God did this, that, and the other, but it doesn't really say how. Was that actually nails it, doesn't it? It tells you mm. how he did it. It's interesting. How yeah, there's there's like lots of things that come to my mind here. This thing where he talks about the um, this father being the sun and the mother the moon. Um, you, you have both genders there. You do have this sort of unity of opposites: the male and the female, the sun and the moon. Um, and it says after this, it says its power is complete. And I think it's important to see that it requires both. You know, it requires the feminine and the masculine in order for its power to be complete. And that's why, again, coming back to a biblical perspective where it says, let us make man in our image. It, and then it says um, they made man in their image, in their likeness, male and female. Yes, yes. Uh, and then this, this bit about a fire that becomes earth. It yeah, comes what's that out, all about? Well, you know, he's talking about the subtle and the gross. And by the subtle, I think he means like the numinous, the spiritual part of ourselves. Yeah. Gross is like the material part of ourselves. So you have yeah, this dual. Gross, gross is you sort of start off as a worm, and uh, <laughs> subtle is you end up as an angel. Right. To and it's also funny because like I told you this before, but in the Islamic tradition, um, angels were made from fire. And that, all, that goes back to the Zoroastrian religion because they actually they were called fire worshippers because they, they, would, they would give their prayers to a a fire. It, the fire was the representation of God. 
So there's this connection between fire and spirit. And what he says is a fire that becomes earth, a spirit that becomes material, you know, God becoming the cosmos. I love that. I love that. I actually had uh, a conversation with Mariella, I think it was this morning, and uh, we were just looking at the idea. In the past, I've I've kind of posited this idea that um, everything started out as, you know, you've got God or source, and then from that you get angels, and then, you know, like lesser gods. And then from that you get humans, you know, with spirits inhabiting humans. But after I've after I've read this Kabbalion and also what you've what you've said there, it strikes me that I might have this upside down, possibly. That the way that the creation occurs is that the source, the ultimate absolute, empties himself to a point where it is the lowest it can go, the grossest it can go, the most physical it can be. And then what happens, this indrawing, this evolution, is a spiritward movement where we basically ascend, not just physically, ev- evolving physically in, into humans, but also mentally and spiritually. And somewhere along the line, what is probably happening there, as we die as humans, we're actually becoming spirit. That's where your spirits are probably ending up with, uh, from not from probably being created as spirit in the first place, but having Mm. ascended to a spirit level. And then um, maybe reincarnation comes into that as well. So you you bring up the word ascended to describe it. Ascending, yeah. And it's funny because the eighth line of of this says, with great capacity, it ascends from earth to heaven. Again, it descends from earth and takes back the power of the above and the below. And, and what you got your reincarnation there. Yeah, absolutely. It yep. also describes it also describes that process that I bring up from time to time because it's God becoming m- the material cosmos, and then the material cosmos becoming God. It's yep. this back and forth. And if you if you listen, he says he says and takes back the power of the above and the below. And what that tells me is that God learns something by becoming yes. me. Right. And then I gain something by becoming God, that there's a back and forth. There's a process. It looks a little bit like that wave we've been talking about. But there's a there's a back back and forth and it and both sides are necessary, you know, being and the non being, the God and the and the cosmos, you know? Yeah. I think I think that's it. I think that's it. And when we are um ultimately uh we get back on a spirit plane, you know, fifth dimension. Um, and I think at that point we have a choice. I do think we have a choice. I don't think anybody is forced necessarily to reincarnate back. I think you can either choose to uh, stay where you are as a spirit, uh, perhaps act as a spirit guide if anyone will listen to you, or maybe get, you know, you might want to come back for another another human uh, experience, or uh, you might at that point decide I want to be assimilated back into source back into the all. And like you say, I think if that is the case, you would be taking something valuable with you, Mm. Um, an experience that is a real experience that maybe Source only ever had as a potentiality. That's that's good. Does that that remind you of Jacob's Ladder? 
Yes, I suppose it does a bit, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. angels descending. Angels descending and ascending, yeah. Bit of mm. reincarnation going on there. <laughs> so, uh, well, that was it. That was lovely. Um, I think our time's about up now, isn't it? Yes, sir. It's always Thank a pleasure, you. Daniel. Thank you for joining me again. I'll uh, I'll stay online uh, in just a moment, and we can just uh, have a quick chat before we... Uh, Farewell, but uh, let's thank everybody for joining us uh, this evening for our live stream. Um, thanks for dropping in. I hope you can join us uh, again soon. Thank you. Big thank special you. thank you to uh, Chris over there for joining us. Always a pleasure. I always learn something new every time you come on. <laughs> My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. <laughs>